Hello, this is Professor Alistair Duff and the Research Rules Podcast. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's very good of you. Each time I cover a different letter of the alphabet, I started with A and did anonymity. I then did B, bibliography. I did C, copyright. Last time was D, design. And this time it's E and I'm going to talk about ethics. I do hope you'll find this useful. I'll speak for about 10 or 15 minutes and I'm going to make five or six different points. Trying to summarize my knowledge of research ethics. I used to be research integrity lead for a large multidisciplinary school. So I should know a little about this, I hope. I'm also an active researcher and I have to practice ethics myself. You might have heard the old media joke, what is ethics? Is that not a county to the east of London? Well, actually, you have to take ethics seriously if you are a student and if you are a researcher. Increasingly, it is part of the thinking about research now that ethics has to be bedded into your research, baked into it, I should say, and if you don't take ethics seriously, you will get into a lot of trouble. There are many different documents, concordats, um, codes of ethics, and so on. I've read many of them. I've had to read them. I read one recently. It's just out. The European Code of Conduct for Research Integrity, which is very good. It's a revised edition of an earlier version, and it came out in 2023, very recently. This is good reading. I don't recommend you read all these different ones. You don't have to, but you should read your university's one. It will have a code of research conduct and you should take it seriously. It'll be boring, of course, but you should read it from beginning to end. But you know, the interesting thing is that all these different documents, which might run to dozens, hundreds of pages, they can all be boiled down to a few good rules. In fact, you could argue that they can all be boiled down to one rule, which is to quote Google, don't be evil. But let me be a little more specific because I don't think that will quite do the business today. First of all, this is number one. You should treat your subjects as human beings. If you're working with people, whether that's directly interviewing them, indirectly through an online survey. Perhaps you are even going to be in a clinical situation, in a laboratory situation or something like that. But in all these different situations, you have to treat people not as objects, but as subjects, as human beings. To quote Bob Dylan, he used to sing, you must do unto others as you'd have them do to you. You know, there is a kind of arrogance in academia because we are educated and the researcher can sometimes go into a situation feeling a little superior, a little different from the people they're researching. Well, get rid of that because you're no better, I'm no better than the people we interview or deal with in a research context. So see them as human beings and put their interests first. 
if they're not human, <laughs> if they're perhaps animals, um, I'm not an expert on animal research ethics. I have strong feelings about it, but I'm no expert. But I would say that can all be summed up as treat the animals, the laboratory rats, whatever it is, as your own pets. How about that for a headline research integrity rules rule when it comes to working with animals? You also, secondly, need to get consent from human subjects. And if possible, you should get written consent. Most codes of research integrity suggest, in fact, insist that you get written uh, research consent. So you have to explain to people what your research is about, how it will affect them. You have to give them the opportunity to pull out of research if they don't like the way it's going or whatever. And so you need real consent and be, you need to be honest with your research subjects. And if you can't get written consent, try to get verbal consent, preferably on tape. If not, Sometimes it's not possible, for example, if you're doing certain kinds of observational research, you might not be introducing yourself to the people you're observing. And so you can't get consent, but insofar as you can get consent, get consent. And at all times, as I've said, treat your research subjects as human beings. Thirdly, you need to be careful with data. We live in digital society and data is the new oil, as we all know. Well, you need to treat your data meticulously, scrupulously, and you need to be clear with your research subjects about what you're going to do with that data. And I've argued, I think I did this when I covered anonymity at the start of this podcast series, I argued that it's very difficult now to guarantee anonymity. So you need to be on it, you should try to do it, but sometimes third parties can get in there and work out who you're talking about. Anonymity is very, very difficult to secure, absolutely. So, you know, you need to be aware of the politics of data, of the issues, the, you know, the sort of technical issues around data and anonymization and de-anonymization. So I think if you just say to people, look, I'm going to keep you anonymous in my report, in my article, if you're going to write an article, in my dissertation, and I will be as careful as I can with your data. I don't think you have to say you're going to destroy the data very quickly. Um, I know some codes of research integrity say you should do that, but it's arguably not the case. In fact, I'm going back to some research data from nearly 10 years ago, some recorded interviews, and it's incredible what I came up with then, and some of it didn't get into my article, and I might well write another article based on things I didn't quote from that round of interviews. It would actually be tragic if I had destroyed these, and the people didn't expect me to destroy these interview tapes. So, you know, think about data. There's a lot written on it, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, be, you know, put your research subjects interests first.
Fourthly, you need to be honest about your findings. You need to report your material fairly. You need to not disguise failure. You need to try to be representative about your findings, not just cherry pick. And also, and this isn't often said, you need to be honest about your contribution because sometimes people make grandiose claims about the significance of their research. And even universities do this. You'll see this with the Research Excellence Framework, which is a national audit of UK research institutions. And, you know, universities basically are a little economical with the truth sometimes. They exaggerate, they boast. And if you drill down into the data, you find that what they are saying, their rhetoric doesn't quite stack up. There is actually in academia a kind of, not in all sections, but there is a dishonesty about research, a cutting of corners when it comes to, you know, claims about research and its significance and importance. So I do think you need to be, have a modesty about your research and don't exaggerate your caliber. I mean, don't undersell it either, but try to be honest about your research and be what Reinhold Niebuhr called the moral man in immoral society, or we might say today the moral woman in immoral society. So immoral whatever. <laughs> so you need to actually, when you see people around you cutting corners, not being entirely accurate about things, you need to be the ethical person. It won't make you popular always, but if you want to really be observing research integrity, if you want to be the ethical researcher, sometimes you need to say things and do things and not do things that uh, could make you a little unpopular for a time. Fifthly, do not steal. That's a commandment, isn't it, I think? <laughs> and by it, I mean cite your sources meticulously, your academic and other sources. Cite them meticulously. I did cover this under B, bibliographical rules. So you need to be, you know, not fall into plagiarism and taking someone's ideas as your own. Uh, sometimes one can do that inadvertently. You know, sometimes an idea floats into your head when you've done a lot of reading, you're writing up your dissertation, your article, whatever it is, and you say something and then later you realise actually someone else had said it and you didn't cite them. That can happen. We're not perfect, but try to avoid that insofar as you can. And you should also acknowledge collaboration, who has helped you, maybe sometimes as a co-author. You need to acknowledge you know, that it isn't entirely your own work. You know, none of us were, you know, produced out of a vacuum, ex nihilo. We are part, we are social beings. We are part of social and academic networks. Of course, in a dissertation, you have to be original, but you also have to acknowledge that you are a product, to some extent, of the work of others. We stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? This is Professor Alistair Duff and this is the, the excuse me, Research Rules 
podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. I'm nearly finished. A sixth point I would make is that you must declare any possible conflict of interest. And all research codes say this. It's obviously um, self-evident that you should do so. Sometimes people haven't done it in the past. They tend to do it today. You know, if I'm going to argue that research has marvelous, that smoking, excuse me, has marvelous therapeutic effects, I must acknowledge that my research is funded by Benson and Hedges. You know, I read a recent book, uh, book recently out by Paul Gowder, entitled Network Leviathan for Democratic Pl Platforms. And he's a political scientist. It's a critique of platforms like Facebook and Google. And it's very interesting. At the start, he majors on the fact that he had worked on Facebook's oversight panel, what they call inside the company its Supreme Court. And so he had worked with Facebook trying to navigate the tremendous issues they're facing in keeping a platform with 2.89, the last count, billion users, um, trying to keep everyone in line, trying to keep the Facebook platform clean very very difficult for them and he is one he was one of several experts on this panel and he declares this at the start and then the rest of the book is about what should be the correct kind of platform governance and it does sort of command confidence in you when he's so honest at the start about a possible bias uh, seeping into his work. I mean, he's no longer working with Facebook, but he's, you know, he was absolutely correct to be upfront that he had worked with them, had been paid by them. And so if he was going to be soft on Facebook in the book, he wanted, you know, to, to be upfront about that. He, he tries not to be soft, but of course, sometimes we are affected by um, our experiences. So he seeks objectivity and so should you. And if you think you might not have achieved it, you need to declare that somewhere. Finally, I would say, do not make ethics an afterthought. It's not an add-on. It needs to be baked in at the beginning, built in into the foundations from the start and ethics clearance can take a long time especially if you're working with vulnerable groups or whatever it can, can take a long time to get approval if you're doing clinical work or you know stuff that's sensitive you might have to go through you might have to sit and face a research integrity panel that happens in the sciences a lot more than the, in the humanities and social sciences but in any case you will have to get your research proposal past someone who will be looking at its potential ethical dangers. And so you need to start thinking about research ethics at the start. So that's all I have to say. I do hope you found this useful. This is Professor Alistair Duff and the Research Rules podcast series. I'm looking forward to meeting you or speaking to you. Hopefully I'll meet you too one day next time. But this is all I have to say about research ethics. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.